It is great to see all of you here today, and uh, I want to introduce myself. I'm Pastor Steve, dropping my newspaper article. Uh, it is good to see you. Glad you're here this morning. I'd like to begin with a word of prayer before we open the scriptures and just to ask God to uh, meet us where we are today. Lord, we just sang the song that we're hungry, and that can mean a lot of things. I do know that as we sit here today and as we come into this place, some of us are empty. Some of us are hungry. Some of us are thirsty. Some of us have great needs. And Father, as we open the scriptures today, we ask that by your word and by your spirit, you might minister to our needs so that when we walk out of here, we would be very much like the people sitting on that hillside who got filled up because Jesus gave them something to fill them up. And I pray, dear God, that through Jesus you might fill us up today. And we pray in his name, and we will give you the honor and glory. Amen. Before I get into the message this morning, I did want to make mention, and I know it's after the offering, but this is the last time we're going to emphasize, I think, the offering, uh, the communion offering for Eki. And uh, Johnson, we have some members of our church that are stranded in Canada. They can't get visas to come back into the country. And I've been in email contact with the church up there that's helping to care for them. And we're raising money so they can fly home to Cameroon. That should happen in March. And I want to thank each one of you who has given to the communion fund so we can help Eki and Johnson. We've collected about $2,000 towards that goal right now. So praise God. And if you want to give... Uh, find an usher afterwards or make out a check or something. Don't give me money. I lose it. Um, but uh, the ushers or somebody could be glad to give that offering as well if you want to participate. And thank you all who have been participating. Well, I was reading the paper yesterday. I haven't looked at today's section. Just tons of fun in the newspaper these days, aren't there? Uh, headlines, Los Angeles Times, right column, state caught in avalanche of job losses. And as I read through the article, it says that the present unemployment rate in California is 10.1%. In L.A. County, it's 10.5 percent. We're getting close to the figures of Michigan, the worst in the nation. So that means about one out of ten people that could be working in this state are not working, 10 percent of the folks not working. That's uh, grim news. A few weeks ago, we started a series of sermons that's going to lead us up to Easter, and I'm calling these messages Looking Up in Down Times. And I'm not going to uh, try to stress to you that these are down times. If you're not aware of that or if you don't believe that, then just forgive me for the title, okay? But I want to encourage you, and I hope that as you leave today, you really are looking up no matter what you're experiencing. Now, on your dashboard of your car, I suspect, and there may be some high-tech exceptions here, but I expect you've got a gas gauge, right? And it probably has a needle on it. My old car has a needle. And uh, that needle, think about your car, where's the gas gauge needle right now? Is it empty, full, somewhere in between, quarter of a tank? Those of us who experienced the Northridge earthquake, you know, the rule is I don't let my car get too low on gas anymore because we couldn't buy gas back then. And uh, I've been nervous ever since. But that's another story. But I'd like for you to think about your own life. If your life was like the gauge on the dash of your car, the gas tank gauge, where's the needle? Is it a quarter full, half full, three-quarter full, full, or perhaps empty? In fact, just today, someone said to me, my gauge is empty, the tank is empty. 
And I recognize that could be where you're at. I want to talk to you today out of a miracle in John chapter 6. But before we begin, be, uh, go to that chapter, just the explanation, as this series is underway, we are talking about the miracles of Jesus. And we started with a miracle in Matthew. We looked at one in Mark last week, and today we're going to look at a miracle from John. And we've been talking about a little bit uh, a sense of, well, can we even believe in miracles? And uh, the last couple of weeks we talked about why I think it's impossible to think the miracles were legend or myth or fiction, and we talked about those reasons. And I'm not going to spend much time on this this morning, but I, I do want to acknowledge I realize it's hard for some of us to believe in miracles. And you may wonder, did the miracles in the Bible actually happen? What are they supposed to mean? And uh, I, I want to address that briefly. In our day, there's a, there are books like The God Delusion by Richard, Richard Dawkins and scientists like John Macquarie who challenge both the belief in God, they say there is no God, and they challenge, of course, the reality of miracles. And these are intelligent, serious men and scientists. Uh, before their day, people like David Hume and Spinoza and others began to look at life in a rationalistic and naturalistic view, challenging the very belief in God or the belief in miracles. Now, again, it's not my point to try and prove this to you today, but I do want to recognize that some of us may have trouble believing in miracles. Are they real? Or we don't think about it very seriously. Uh, one of the books I enjoyed reading this summer is by Timothy Keller. He's a Presbyterian pastor in New York, and he's written this book called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And I wanted to just lift up a passage here uh, from this book. He says this. It's one thing he's writing about uh, he's in his chapter 6. He says science has disproved Christianity, and he's taking on that challenge. Does science disprove Christianity? And in this chapter, he talks about that. And this section is, aren't miracles scientifically impossible? And he goes on to say, and of course, I can't give you the full argument here, but he says, it's one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and that cannot speak to any others. It is quite another thing to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. And he goes on to quote this one scientist who said, Miracles... A miracle is irreconcilable with modern understanding of both science and history. Macquarie, writes Keller, is quite right to assert that when studying this phenomenon, the scientist must always assume there is a natural cause. That is because natural causes are the only kind its methodology can address. It's another thing to insist that science has proven that there can't be any other kind. And he goes on to further develop that argument. I encourage you, if you want to read further on that, to pick up uh, Tim Keller's book. This morning, we're going to come to yet another natural miracle. And what do you think we're going to be talking about today? Bread. Some of you caught on. And I'll say more about the bread makers in just a minute. Um, but I want to invite you to join me. And there are Bibles in your pews. We've got plenty of Bibles. If you didn't bring one, I'd like for you to look with me at John chapter 6. It's on page 97. If this, if you've got a church Bible, it's page 97 in the New Testament. You kind of go to the far right side of your Bible and look with me at John chapter 6. Now, in the Gospel of John, if you were studying this book, you would learn a lot of things. One of them would be that John likes to talk about signs. What do signs do for us? Think of a sign. What's a sign do? Gives you directions. 
It says detour, go around here. There are arrows on signs. There are words on signs. Signs uh, inform us. They direct us. They guide us. They stop us. Signs. You know what a sign does. Now, in the Gospel of John, when you read a miracle, he, he says there are lots of miracles, and he said the whole world couldn't contain everything if I told you all about Jesus. John concludes by saying that. But he actually gives us only a very limited number of miracles. And so whenever John gives a miracle, he says this is a sign. Now, this miracle is about bread, but the point is not the bread. In fact, in John's miracles, when he tells you a story, there are many, many other layers or meanings to that story. He wants you to, it's, it's like a sign that says go this way and you go that way and you see the kind of world opens up. And so I want to explore a bit about what this is about, this miracle of the bread, this sign. And it's the fourth sign. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John, and this is the fourth one. And we come to it in uh, John chapter 6. I'm kind of excited about it, but I'm also struggling because this is one of the longest chapters in the Gospels. And it, the whole chapter is about bread. How long would it take to preach on 70-some verses? Well, if we gave a minute a verse, that'd be fair, right? Ah, uh, the bread would be burned. Um, so anyhow, you can see my dilemma, but that's my dilemma. Let's jump in, and I want to talk about this miracle of, of Jesus. The story opens in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. Now, you can see in those verses it says a large crowd is following them. Jesus goes up onto a mountain, verse 3. Verse 4 is important because it says it's the Passover. Uh, those of you who have studied the Bible a lot the, know the Passover had to do with the Exodus. The Passover was a feast. Now, the people John's writing to and the people of this day would have caught some things in this whole story you and I are probably going to miss. And if we had more time, we could get into that. But I just want to highlight that it's the Passover. It's a festival season. They're about to have this great time of remembrance when God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land eventually. Moses was the great, great deliverer. He was the one who brought them out. So keep Moses in mind. So it's Passover season. Now, in verse 5, we, are, let's, uh, we go through verse 4, then verse 5. It says, Jesus looks up and he sees this large crowd. And here's where I want to begin. It says, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? The first observation I want to make as we go through this miracle is that life tests us. Life tests us. Now watch what's about to happen in the next verse. Jesus says something about where are we going to get enough uh, bread for these people, and it says in verse 6, he said this to test him. He's talking to a disciple named Philip, for he himself, Jesus, knew what he was about to do. Now isn't that interesting, that Jesus asks a question, he already knows the answer, parents do this all the time, by the way, he asks a question, he already knows the answer, and it feels like he's setting Philip up. And it says right here, he asks to test him. Now, you don't need to answer out loud, but I'm going to ask you, do you think God tests us? Don't answer out loud, do you think God tests us? Some of you are remembering the book of James, chapter 1, where it says, For God cannot be tempted or tested, nor does God set you up, uh, nor does God tempt or test you by evil. 
Now, I've used the word tempt or test, and let me just pause a moment. When you're in Scripture, you can switch the words around. It doesn't matter. That may upset some of you, but when the Bible says test, the word can also be translated tempt. And the translator chooses which way to translate it. So the Bible says God doesn't test anybody. And yet here you read about Philip getting tested by Jesus. It's the same word, by the way. So you can't go down that road and think you're going to get out of any trouble. Uh, so what's going on here when James says God doesn't test anybody? Well, let me put it this way. God doesn't set you up for evil failures. In fact, the Scripture goes on to say, when I fail, when I do something that's wrong or sinful, it's because my own sinful heart has led me down that road. God didn't lead me down that road. God doesn't set up some evil thing in front of you and say, now, don't touch, don't touch. God's not like that. So I think that's what James is talking about. And when I look back on my own failures... I can't blame God. God didn't trick me or test me or try me. But the Bible does talk a lot about God testing us. In fact, from Old to New Testament, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. But go to back to the time of the Passover. You remember they came out of Egypt. They stopped at Mount Sinai at the McDonald's. You remember? And Moses went up on the mountain. What did he do? He came down with the Ten Suggestions or something, the Law, the Ten Commandments. And it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, you can look it up, there was thunder and there was lightning and the people were terrified. And it says God gave the thunder and lightning to test them so that they wouldn't sin. So there in in the Old Testament, you can read about God testing God's very own people. Now you can go over to the Deuteronomy. You remember when they went through the wilderness, it says God led them through the wilderness to what? To test them. One other example. When Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized, and then he went into the wilderness to what? Remember the great, the temptation? We talk about it. It's a great story. It's a temptation or a what? Testing. Same word. Use it either way. Jesus was tested before he started his ministry. Now, I haven't had the time nor the brains to research this, but I read this week from someone who's very respected and said, God never tests a person who's not a person of faith in the Bible. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? It's only those of us who are actually God followers that get tested by God. That's what this scholar said. That's interesting. So I want to suggest to you that life tests us, and as I'm talking about testing, I hope that you will think in your mind about testing. Now, Philip is getting tested. And I don't know why Jesus wanted to test him. That would be a great preaching point if I could just dream up some... Reason, But I don't know why Jesus wanted to test Philip, but I do know he did test him with this question. Let's go back to the Scripture and look at it. Verse 5, Philip is asked the question, where are we going to get enough bread? Jesus says he did this to test him, verse 6, verse 7. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. If I were paraphrasing this, Philip would be saying, you know, Uh, And this version says six months, some versions say a year. He says, you know, it'd take a lot of money for each person to get one bite. If we could just get everybody a bite of bread, it still would take a lot of money. Now, I don't know how much it costs. You're going to find out later there were 5,000 men present. If you figure one man, one woman, and two children, which I think is a conservative figure for this day and age, how many would that be present? 20,000? 
Now, if you fed 20,000 people, if you went to McDonald's and fed them at five bucks a piece, which is not a lot of McDonald's food, that's $100,000, right? Now, if you just went to Burger King and got, is a, is a Whopper still a dollar? Can you do that? Uh, you know, if you could get a dollar burger, how much? Whopper Junior's a dollar. That's right. I've eaten thousands of them, I think. Uh, one dollar, you can't go wrong. So if you got a Whopper Junior for everybody, that's still $20,000. You can do the math and play around with it. It's a lot of money they're talking about. But what's interesting to me is what does Philip think about when he thinks about this problem? He's being tested. Jesus throws up this question. How are we going to feed everybody? Where does Philip's mind go? Money. Is, am I wrong? Money. And also can't do it. There's just no way to get each person a single bite. Lord, we can't do it. You know what's in the treasury. It's a Baptist treasury. We can't feed all these people. So Philip is tested. Now, in verses 8 and 9, they're not alone out there. There are how many disciples? Twelve. Good. Uh, so some of them, apparently somebody is overhearing this conversation because in verse 8, we read one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, I love that line. And I want to stop and think a bit and cause you to think about Philip and about Andrew. Here's Andrew who overhears this uh, conversation, Jesus and Philip. Philip hasn't got an answer, and so I don't know what Andrew did, but maybe he's wandering around and he sees this kid with the loaves and the fish, and he comes over to, the, uh, to where Jesus is with uh, Philip, and Andrew brings him over there. And I wonder, there's no way to know this, you can make up your own version, but Philip, uh, I mean, Andrew comes over there with the boy and the fishes and said, well, Jesus, here's some food. And maybe Andrew was even excited about it. And here's what I wonder. I wonder if the other disciples, maybe even Peter, said, What are you, ridiculous? You're going to feed 5,000 men with five loaves? You know, I wonder if somebody didn't make a wisecrack about him coming over here with his suggestion. And then Andrew said, Oh, well, it's not much with so many people around. You know, you just kind of wonder what went on between the lines there. Again, I don't know. But Andrew sees something, and he brings it over to Jesus. He presents it. Now, here's my question. I like to put it this way. Philip, uh, Philip is a pessimist. Philip is concerned about the money side of things. I call him fearful Philip, one-bite Philip, half-empty glass Philip. Philip sees the problems. You remember the little thing about the poem, the guy's in prison, he looks, between, he looks out between the bars, you know, the prisoner's looking between the bars. One looks down and sees mud. One looks up and sees stars. Same prison. That's what's going on here. And then Andrew, he sees a solution, and he brings this kid to uh, Jesus. William Barclay, I mentioned him last week. We were talking about storms. And I talked about the storm that blew through this uh, man who loved God. His daughter drowned in a yachting accident with her husband when she was 21, and William Barclay talked about the pain in his own heart. Well, in his comments about this passage, here's what William Barclay says. He tells a story of a German schoolmaster who taught boys, young boys in Germany. 
And every time the schoolmaster came in to start class, he would come in and he would take off his cap and he would bow low to the boys and in a big kind of ceremonial bow to them and say, let's begin our class. And someone inquired, well, why do you do that? And he said, well, I never know what might happen to one of these boys and who he might grow up to become. You just never know who this boy might be. And in his class was a boy named Martin Luther who grew up to literally revolutionize Christianity. Now, you see, that's an Andrew kind of perspective, isn't it? That's an Andrew kind of perspective. And this morning, I want to challenge you. Life tests you. There's no question about that. I don't care if you're a believer or a heathen. Life tests you. We all have our tests in life. But the fact is, little is much when God is in it, as we're going to see in a moment. Now, I want you to think about this with me. Do you have any tests in your life right now? Friday, a man walked into my office and said, I lost my job this week. Asked for some help. I was able to write a recommendation letter and help him. Said I'd pray for him, encourage him. Um, two, uh, Wednesday, in our Lenten series, friends of Ted and Elena Hill, a friend of Ted and Elena's Hill were here, a grandmother who's little 21-month-old daughter died just like that a few days ago. Had a fever. Took her to the hospital. The hospital sent her home and the girl died. Uh, Less than two weeks ago, in fact, on Monday, I called my uh, daughter-in-law, Shannon. I said, Shannon, it seems like something wrong. And she said, I just got news. A girl I grew up with died just like that. We don't know what's wrong with her. And she's got three little kids and a husband. And her funeral was yesterday. You see, there's a lot of pain around, isn't there? And you've got your own pain. You've got your tests. I don't know what they are. Maybe your tests are uh, no job. Maybe you have little money. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe your test is old age. Your body's growing old, and that can be a test. There are all kinds of tests that come to us. Discouragement, boredom, sadness, fear, all manner of tests. This morning, would you at least think about some tests that are thrown up in your life that you're facing? What are, you, what are your tests? And then think about Philip or Andrew. Are you most like Philip or are you most like Andrew? Are you fretting over finances or are you out there looking for lunch somewhere like Andrew was? Now, let's see what happens next because I think this is where it gets a little better. took a long time on that point of test, but we all have our tests and you're not unique. You have your tests. The question is, how are we going to address them? Now, let's go back to the scripture, John chapter 6, page 97. Uh, the boy with the fishes has been brought forward. Verse 10. Practical statement. Jesus says, make the people sit down. Now, there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. I have no idea why this version says in all, because the scripture actually says 5,000 men. But maybe they were a little nervous about the number. Um, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish... And I'm going to stop reading there. Jesus took the loaves and did what? I didn't hear you. He did what? He gave thanks. He gave thanks. Then Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. How thankful are you? How thankful are you? I was, Joyce and I were watching some kind of magazine news TV show and uh, it was on foreclosures and it was a pretty sad show showing people who had lost their house, maybe they had lost their job, and then their house or the payment bloomed, whatever reasons they were moving out. And uh, it was a very sad show. 
But in that show, there were some uh, families, and I said, those families have just got to be Christians because these people were speaking about, in spite of the great uh, difficulty and test that was coming to them, one man said, you know, our family's closer now than it's ever been. And he began to share things, not that he was glad for the tragedy, but he said, you know, in the middle of this, we've really come together, and he was thankful for something. And I want to ask you, what are you thankful for? Because this sermon is all about bread, and it's about getting full. We're going to get to that. But part of that, and part of how God wants to help you in the midst of your test, is that you've got to have a thankful heart. Now, in a few moments, we're going to have communion, and we're going to ask for your patience, because I have no idea how this is going to work. Uh, we're going to have to get this bread out of here, and without burning ourselves, uh, this one is great. Anyhow, there's some bread, and we're going to invite you to come forward. We thought it'd be great for you just to be smell, smell the cooking bread this morning as you come to communion, to help you remember. You know scientifically it's proven that if you have good smells while you're hearing something, you'll remember more. I mean, it's just the truth. Um, I learned that in another book on the brain. Um, where was I? Oh, bread. I wanted to ask you, what, what kind of bread do you like? Any kind of bread? There's a woman after Joyce's own heart. Any kind of bread. I'm sorry, somebody said sourdough? What else? What kind of bread do you like? Oh, yeah. Good, real French bread, right? Not this wannabe French bread. Yeah. Real fresh French bread. What else? Cinnamon swirl. Toasted. Now, I thought about getting some cinnamon bread and just start toasting it here. Yeah, that's good. With raisins? Yeah. What kind? The bread of life. What other kinds of bread do you like? Pita bread. There's all kinds of bread, aren't there? And most of it's really good. There's lots of good bread around. Uh, this morning we're going to serve you, and we'll, we'll break the bread and ask you to come forward and gather in groups of two or three. And there's a table here, there's a table here, there's one on each side, there's one in the back. If you would rather not come forward, and you, we can serve you, so that's easily done. So there will be somebody roving around to serve you where you're seated if you prefer to do that. But we'll ask you to come forward in a minute and just gather around the table in two or three, four or five. And if your table's full, just wait and we'll serve you again. And we'll invite you here in a moment. Uh, But Jesus uh, broke the bread and he gave thanks. This is a big deal. There's a lot of believers that they gobble down their food and they never say thank you. Now, I don't think it should be a ritual to you. I've got to say a prayer now. If you're not thankful, then don't give thanks. But I'll tell you what, I know enough about the world to know there's a lot of hungry people today, and I'm thankful. I not only get to eat, I get to eat whatever I want, whatever I want, and you do too. So I think you can give thanks before your food. Jesus always did. But there's so many other things. Uh, There are things for which you can give thanks, and that's what I want to emphasize right now. There is something you can be thankful for. In fact, I've got a little exercise for you. I never really thought much about camellias before I moved to Pasadena. I'm a rose kind of guy. I like roses, and that's about the only flower I know. But uh, you know about camellias? They're all over around here. They're blooming right now. This, I guess, is called a variegated one, but uh, it's going to fall apart on me. But you can go outside and go over to the fountain area, or before you leave, just walk down. It's okay to walk on the grass. You can walk up against the building here. There are all kinds of camellias planted, red, white, pink, yellow, whatever this is. Not yellow, I don't think, but anyhow, whatever this is. They're gorgeous. Couldn't you just say, Lord, thank you for beauty? Because the God we believe in is the God of beauty. 
God's creation is beautiful. You're going to walk outside to a beautiful day. There are things for which you can give thanks. And I simply want to encourage this. So as we go through this and talk about testing, the, the thanks isn't going to take away your test, but it's going to change you on the inside. And that's what we're talking about today. So I want to encourage you to be, to be thankful for something. Now, let's into to verses 12 and uh, 13. It says, Jesus took the loaves, he broke them, he gave thanks. And in verse 12 it says, When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fra- fragments left over so nothing might be lost. In fact, wait a minute, I wanted to read this scripture with you, so let me start over. Let's read it. This is good. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples... Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that they had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Our God is a God of abundance. Would you say that with me? Our God is a God of abundance. Now, some of you aren't going to like this point. I already know that because you are a person of scarcity and sacrifice. And sacrifice has its place. But our God is a God of abundance. And this passage is about getting full. It's about the abundant life, which Jesus says he's come to give in chapter 10. Why do I say that? How many loaves did they start with? Five. How many baskets did they end up with? Twelve. In fact, I love this translation because it says that they could eat all they wanted, they had enough, and when they were satisfied, then they collected these 12 fragments left over. Jesus can fill you up. Doesn't the psalmist say, "My"? the psalmist says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup, what, is half full? No, it says my cup is half full. Uh, you, get a, you give me a little bit of my cup, I get a sip or two. That's, what I, that's the best I can do, because there are a lot of people in need, Right? No, my, what does it mean, my cup overfloweth? Isn't that about abundance? I want to tell you what Jesus is talking about. This whole miracle is about abundance. God doing something wonderful in your life. Kind of like Paul prays more than you can ask or imagine. Jesus can fill you up. In uh, John 6.35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Who comes down, whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Think of with me about being full. I can recall, and I don't know why this came to my mind, but as a young boy going to Chinatown with my grandpa. And I can recall, do you ever go to Chinatown with kids and you buy those little, what are they, little pop guns, you know, you kind of slide them around, a cork pops out of the end, it's on a string. You seen those? A lot of you look deprived. <laughs> you know, that little, and anyhow, three brothers, you know, we're... We had a Chinese meal there, and I can remember two things. You know, I can remember shooting my brother with that gun and getting in trouble, and uh, him shooting me back. But I can also remember sort of rolling around on a fence, and we were all, oh, I'm so what? I'm so full and just miserable. We ate ourselves into sheer pain. Now, I know you've never done that at Thanksgiving or yesterday, but here's the point. When you do that, when do you eat again? Get up the next day and you're hungry. Crazy, isn't it? Now, Jesus says in this passage, we all know what it's like to be full. And if you eat all this bread, you'll be full. But you're going to be hungry again soon. Jesus says, the one who comes to me will never be hungry. She will never be thirsty. I'm the bread of God. I'm the bread come down from heaven. I cut out about half this sermon because he's really saying, I'm the new Moses. 
Just like Moses fed you manna in the wilderness, I've got something even better. In fact, the next miracle here, Moses parted the waters. Jesus walked across the waters. He one-upped him. Read it, the next chapter, the next, uh, next story. And then they said he's, they're about to make him king. This is the prophet. He's like Elisha. We could go to 2 Kings chapter 4. Elisha fed a group of prophets with a lo- some loaves of bread. He did the same miracle. Jesus just did it bigger. He one-upped him. Because Jesus is the new prophet. He is the new Moses. He is the redeemer. He's the one who can fill us. And he goes on at length in this chapter to talk about that. Now, one last thing. And I just can't preach this without mentioning the Rolling Stones, right? Ted, this isn't Rolling Stones music. Uh, What song would I be mentioning? You already know it. I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, the, the Stones sang a song, one of their biggest songs, when I'm driving in my car and a man comes on the radio and he's telling me more and more useless information, supposed to misfire my imagination. Oh, no, no, I can't get no satisfaction. More recently, U2 has had a song that's quite popular. I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, stop looking. I can satisfy. And that's the point. If you'll come to me, he says, if you'll eat my flesh, it's gross. If you'll drink my blood, I will satisfy you. You'll never be hurt, thirsty or hungry again. And he goes on to say, I give my flesh for the life of the world. And so this morning, I, I am confident that if you will come to Jesus, if you'll believe his promise, he will fill you up. And he will meet your deepest needs so that the longing of your soul can be met in Jesus. I can't do it. This bread can't do it. But as you take this bread in a moment, you are partaking of Jesus. You are saying, yes, I believe. As you drink that cup, you're saying, yes, I drink and I believe. I accept Jesus as the one who can fill me and satisfy me. And I invite you to this table in just a moment. Jesus promises to fill you up. Are you empty? Are you hungry? Come to the bread of life. In your uh, outline, if you have that in front of you, why don't you read this hymn? I forgot to look up the number. We could sing it together, but uh, maybe we can sing it anyhow. Pull it out there. You've got it. Let's sing this hymn, and then we'll prepare for communion. While we're singing this hymn, I'm going to ask those who are serving you communion, to just go up and go to their spots. They need to prepare. They need to get the bread ready. So they can go ahead and do that now. And let's sing this verse of, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Will you sing out with me? Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through the barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. Lord, we do ask that you fill us up. Forgive us for when we pursue that which cannot satisfy. Forgive us for having tasted of bread, which leaves us just craving more but not satisfying. Forgive us for taking of drink that does not quench our thirst. As we sang a moment ago, Lord, we're hungry and only you can satisfy. 
And as we give ourselves to you, you give yourself to us. We are thankful today. And Lord, while we face tests, we are confident that you will go with us. You will go through the storm with us. You will feed us when we're hungry. You'll comfort us when we're lonely. You'll be there for us, and we thank you. And we ask your blessing on this moment. Amen. Again, I want to share with you how we're going to do this. You're free to choose where you would like to go for communion. And we're going to have some music playing during this time. If you'd rather not walk to a table, then uh, you can be served in the back, and Carrie will be glad to kind of notice that. He's going to give you a few minutes to just sit, and uh, I'd like for you to stand and then come forward, and we can join in groups. I'll be serving at this table, and Pastor Eddie here, and Jennifer, and Joyce, and... uh, Matthew at the back. So choose a place you'd like to go and let's let's observe the Lord's table together. Please come.